Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, you're the one that makes fishing so much fun. Well, I woke up this morning and I headed for my pond. Meet Mr. Pond Boss, yeah, we're gonna chase us some. Firing up old Sparky, show where the living breed. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, tell me what I need. Greetings, everybody. Bob Lusk here, the Pond Boss, editor of Pond Boss Magazine and longtime fishers biologist. Today, coming to you from the balmy hills of uh, North Texas, from the world headquarters of Pond Boss Magazine and Bob Lusk Outdoors. This podcast, today, we're going to talk about the basics of pond management. You know, when uh, folks go out and buy a piece of property that has water on it, or if you want to build a pond, you know, the learning curve can get pretty steep. So today I thought I'd just share some of the fundamentals. Now, each one of these aspects that we're going to talk about today uh, can get complicated, but I'm going to give you the bare bones and the skeleton of what you need to do to manage ponds and lakes. I got a good friend in Detroit, Michigan, and his son a few years ago turned five years old. And I just got to tell you, why do you have your pond? What's the point? You know, those those folks love to go out on the pond, take the kids fishing. I've got a couple of grandkids. As a matter of fact, I got a lot of grandkids. They love to fish. I love to bring them to the house because you can walk right down the dock, put a little bit of a night crawler on a on a jig head, and you'll be catching bluegill before you know it. So the first thing I'm going to tell you about pond management is you got to set goals. I'm going to tell you 30 years ago, if you wanted a pond. 35 years ago, you'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and be at the coffee shop there in your little town. You'd go in there and you'd look for the guy with a grizzled look on his face, the overalls and the khaki shirt and tobacco stains on both sides of his mouth. That was the dozer guy. That was the pond builder. And you'd say, hey, hey, Jimmy, can you come build a pond? He'd pull a little spiral notebook out of his pocket and he would write down your name and number and say, I'll be there in about two weeks. Two weeks later, Tractor trailer shows up, big, shiny, silver-bladed, yellow-looking bulldozer sitting on it. He gets out in the field. He moves back and forth, pushes some dirt, rearranges things, and and within 10 days or two weeks, you had this big cereal bowl-shaped hole in the ground, and it was a pond. Then it kind of rained. Maybe you got a little water in it, and then after it filled up, as an afterthought, you might put a few fish in it. Then you're at the feed store buying horse and cattle feed, and you look at an end cap, and there's some fish food sticking up there, some some Purina catfish chow or something, and you'd say, man, I can feed the fish? You bet. You'd buy some fish food, go back, and pretty soon they're coming up eating that food. Well, that was 35 or 40 years ago. It's not that way now. As a matter of fact, people build ponds with a purpose. My wife and I, the Queen Debbie, we live on 12 acres of land, and on that 12 acres, we've got eight ponds. <laughs> I don't like to mow. <laughs> so, uh, each one of those ponds has a different purpose. And I'll never forget the first one we built. There was one small pond on the property when we bought it back in 2002, and it leaked like a sieve. There was a levee that was built as a road, and as long as the water was coming in faster than it was leaking out, we had a pond. Well, that didn't happen very often, so it was leaking quite a bit. So we decided to build a pond. Well, I called him my good buddy, Mike Otto. He came over there, and he said, Bob, building a pond here is a great idea. Can't do it. I said, well, Mike, why not? He said, you don't have enough dirt to build a dam. Well, what we had was this washed out gully of a little canyon that was probably 25 feet deep, steep sided. There wasn't enough clay that he could harvest to be able to build a decent dam to build a three quarter acre pond. 
So one day he brought his track hoe or brought his backhoe over and we started digging some test holes. Well, on our 12 acres, it falls about 40 feet from high point to low point. And at the high point, there was some really good material that could compact some good clay so we could build a dam. And then at the very bottom of the property, we had some more clay. It wasn't quite as good, but he could mix it with the best clay, get the compaction he needed, and build a dam. So he started doing that, and he, he excavated two big holes and took the clay to build the dam. Now, as this, as this pond was being built, Debbie and I were standing out on the back of the house, and it was going to be built right next to the house, just probably 20 vertical feet below the porch of the house. And there were several post oak trees standing there, and I told Debbie I'd like to, to take that tree and move it over here for fish trucks. There are no bass that are going to hang around that. And she looked at me kind of funny. She says, uh, no, this is going to be a swimming pond. I said, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, no, whoa, whoa, hold up. I'm a fish guy. She said, maybe you did not understand me. <laughs> she said, this is going to be a swimming pond. I said, what, what? She said, just trust me, look, it's going to be a swimming pond. Well, to this day, we've got a really cool dock with a ladder on it, the zip line for the grandkids. Of course, Debbie went off the zip line first. And the lower two-thirds of that pond is just bare, smooth dirt. And the water off the end of the dock is 12 feet deep. And I got to tell you, at the end of a hot July day, one of Debbie's favorite things is to strap on a float belt, get a, get a, a cooler with some ice that has some white wine in it, pour herself a glass of wine, and float in that pond. And as much as I hate to admit it, I like that too. Well, I'm not quite sure... I'm not quite sure how the fish got in there, wink, wink. But the upper third of the pond is good habitat, good structure, good cover. And we do have some really nice fish in it. We got one of the holes that Otto excavated. Uh, we turned it into a catfish pond. Good gosh, we love for kids to come out. We grow some catfish for meat. We grow catfish so kids can catch their first fish and have a good fish. And, and we might even sell a few since I'm in the pond management business. We have another pond that's used as an experimental pond. We use it. There's been times we've actually used it to help Purina Mills develop some of their fish foods. So it's pretty fun there. And then we got the, the other hole that Otto dug. We turned that into two small hatchery ponds. They're one-tenth of an acre each. Those two ponds we use as hatchery ponds to grow fish that we can sell. We've grown everything from bluegill to tilapia to feed trained bass. Uh, and this year, I'm going to try some freshwater prawns and see how well that works. Some of the other ponds we use just for aesthetics. You know, they're just there for fun, for pretty, for beauty, for wood ducks, for wildlife, to water wildlife. So the point I'm trying to make here is if you know the purpose you want your pond to have, and then you set some goals, and you know what you want, your mission will be much easier to accomplish. So as you're thinking about all that, here are the four keys to success with pond management, fisheries management. Number one is habitat. That's going to be your first take-home point from this, habitat. As goes the habitat, so goes what lives in it. If you're going to try to grow bass, I can't tell you how many times I get a phone call from somebody who has built a lake, it's half full of water, and they say, I want you to come look at it. And I'll hop in the old truck. Pop over there, take a look, and they've got the very best bass habitat that they could find. But what they didn't think about is what bass eat. So they didn't supply the right kind of habitat for all the different species of fish that you're planning on using. 
So not only do you want to supply habitat for the different species of fish, you want to supply habitat for the different sizes of those different species of fish as they grow up. Habitat's a big deal. More on that in a minute. The second key to success managing a pond is the food chain. No groceries, no eat, no eat, no grow. It takes 10 pounds of bait fish for a game fish to gain one pound. Now remember that. It takes 10 pounds of bait fish for a game fish to gain one pound. If you don't have the right amount of food, you're not going to see the results you're looking for. The third key to success is genetics. You know, ranchers know that superior bulls with great cows makes a better herd. And those ranchers are willing to change those bulls as they need to to keep improving the herd. Good genetics. If you want to grow great big bluegill, you need the best bluegill genetics. If you want to grow great big bass, you got to have the best bass genetics. If walleye are your deal, you got to have good genetics. The fourth key point is harvest. Look at your pond as a garden. You're going to build it. You're going to stock it. You're going to plant it. You're going to nurture it, manage it. And at some point, there'll be a bounty. And that bounty is what you get to harvest. Now, that the fish you harvest is going to be based quite a bit on what your goals are. If you know your goals and you've done the right habitat with a good food chain and good genetics, at some point, if your goals are, I want to grow big bass, if that's your goals, which a lot of guys have that as goals, then you're going to want to preserve your biggest fish. If your goals are to try to have a balanced fishery, you'll want to start harvesting some fish by about the third year after you stock it. So a harvest plan is crucial to that success. Let's circle back on habitat. Habitat is what a living organism needs to be able to reproduce, to feed, to grow, thrive, hide, loaf, congregate. So little bitty bluegills have different habitat requirements than a great big bass. And part of your job is to figure out what that habitat needs to be. You know, when a fish is first hatched, they weigh about 12,000 per pound. And bluegill, for example, if you give them the chance to live 30 or 45 days, they get to be 30 per pound. Now, circling back on the food chain thing, 10 pounds of bait fish takes to grow a pound of bass or a pound of game fish. How important is it that, you're, that you keep your little bitty fish alive? Well, little bitty fish need to eat quickly, but they also need a place to hide so they don't get eaten quickly. You know, 10 to 12 inch game fish, whether they're channel cat or largemouth bass or smallmouth bass or even walleye, whatever, they've got to have places where they can hide and congregate and be safe and not get eaten as well. So design your habitat appropriately to meet your long-term goals for all species of fish and all sizes of those species. I remember a lake that we helped design down uh, between Athens and Palestine, Texas. It was really interesting because the guy had taken five years to get a permit. It took a long time. So he finally got the permit, and he had already cleared part of the land that was heavily wooded, but there was a good portion of that land that was still wooded. Well, he asked me, what do I need to do? I said, the very first thing we need to do is figure out where the shoreline is going to be. Well, there was no way to do that because of how dense it was. I remember having to go in with snake boots and, and uh, leather pants to keep from getting cut up by the briars. But we were able to go in with a crew and, and figure about where the uh, shoreline was going to be. And then we started harvesting trees that were going to be underwater. You know, a lot of folks would just leave all that standing timber. 
but I've never seen a bass living in a canopy of a tree 20 feet out of the water. So what we did there was we went in and we hand selected the trees that we wanted to use as cover and we cut the trunks. Then as I was thinking about the anglers, well, the canopies are great for bait fish to hide. Well, we had plenty of that, but we also had some uh, bigger trees where we didn't need the canopy. So we started cutting all the small limbs off and let the medium sized to large limbs stay in place. We were able to later come in and drag those trees over and put them at a 45 degree angle, starting off in water about five feet deep, angled down into water about 22 to 25 feet deep. So that gives big bass plenty of cover where they can hide and ambush. And adjacent to these trees, as we placed them, we took some of the canopy limbs and we created dense cover for the bait fish to hide in. So as you design your habitat plan, be thoughtful and be pretty particular about where you put things. Like, for example, you know, if you know that bluegills spawn in colonies in water six inches to 18 inches deep and they prefer gravel, design that into your plan. If you've already got a pond and you want to get more spawns from your, your sunfish, create spawning beds. Adjacent to the spawning beds, I love to have things like American pondweed or bushy pondweed or eelgrass or some of the native plants in your area are a good choice to allow them to grow adjacent to these spawning beds so these newly hatched fish have a place they can go hide. That's pretty cool. Then beyond that, some less dense cover where the juvenile fish can go hide once they get past the the stage of the fry stage. And then beyond that, just beyond that less dense brush pile, that's where you've got your larger structure. My favorite structure is rock piles. Oh my gosh, when we're running our electrofishing boat and sampling lakes, there's not one time where there's a rock pile in a lake that it doesn't have the most fish congregated in it and around it in that interstitial space between rocks. Rocks anywhere from softball to volleyball size are perfect like riprap, and you have those in water five to eight feet deep. Now, that seems to be the magic number in most lakes. Five to eight feet deep is where you want the majority of your structure. Now, how much should you need? do you need for habitat? Well, there's some argument about that, but I'm going to give you my argument. I think 20 to 30% of a lake should have some type of habitat. I think if you have more than that, it tends to disperse fish if you have less than that, eh, they just don't, they all congregate too much. They overeat the food chain. So 20 to 30%, and it can be a mix of rock piles, aquatic plants, uh, brush piles. Now, the, the problem with brush piles is they don't last long. You know, a Christmas tree underwater in most parts of the planet lasts maybe eight years usually three to five years, and by year six, all you've got left is the trunk and the major limbs. So think about the materials that you use to create habitat. There's all kinds of methods to, to install habitat. You can stack logs. You can stack pallets. Uh, there's some artificial structure that's great. There's all kinds of brands. One of the advertisers in Pond Boss is Mossback, Mossback Fish Attractors. We use those in our, in, uh, our Bob Lusk Outdoors pond management company all the time. I remember one lake we worked on where the landowner had torn down a dairy barn and he wanted to get rid of the the uh, what used to be the foundation. So he brought some guys in with jackhammers, busted up the concrete, and he had it piled up. And I said, what are you going to do with that? He says, I don't know. You want it? 
I said, you bet. We took that concrete, stacked it on top of some uh, some trees that we cut that were standing dead timber from inside that lake as we renovated that lake. And between the concrete piles laying on top of the of the of the logs and the dead timber, we created some habitat that to this day, when I run my electric fishing boat over it, fish pop up like crazy. It works well. You know, another creative thing we did was some habitat. Just and, and when I say creative, I'd like to stimulate your thought so you can make your situation the best it can be. One lake I was working on looks like we were going to have five or six acres of water less than two feet deep. But when you have water less than two feet deep, you can pretty well bet that you are going to grow a lot of aquatic plants and it's going to be a nuisance for you at some point. So what we did there was, during construction of the lake, we brought in a track hoe, which was on site, sitting idle. We brought him over with an operator, and in three days, they cut these big holes, 45 feet in diameter, four feet straight down in water that otherwise would be two feet deep. And it's just kind of picture these big round holes side by side. We dug nine of them. And along the rims, we put gravel so we could have spawning habitat. And the goal was to to hope that sunfish would use it as areas to spawn and that they could have some deeper water where the anglers could catch them, wouldn't grow up with too much aquatic plants, and we could set up a feeder to attract as many fish as we could. Well, the landowner decided he would build a boardwalk-looking dock that meanders across every one of those holes. To this day, that's one of the favorite places for kids to go catch big old sunfish off that boardwalk. It's pretty cool. You know, you also got to think about how you want to do uh, your food chain. Your food chain is going to be designed based on what your goals are. If your goals are to grow big, largemouth bass, for example, you got to have bluegill as the backbone of your food chain. If you have bluegills, they reproduce, especially in southern climates, four to five times a year. In the Midwest, you can expect them to spawn two to three times a year. And in the North and the Northeast, expect bluegills to spawn one to two times a year. Now, if you feed them, they'll have more babies because they'll be more uh, eggy. They'll be able to reproduce better and grow faster. Bluegill are the backbone of the food chain. Let me tell you about fathead minnows. Fathead minnows are used for two purposes. Fathead minnows are used in a brand new pond to promote the first year's growth of fingerling largemouth bass. That's their job. The second job is to use them in a pond, like, say, for catfish only, where they can be a second source of food for channel catfish other than, you know, your fish food. So fathead minnows, let me tell you a story. Here's this a true story. I was given a speech one time three or four years ago. Matter of fact, I was in Mineral Wells, Texas, and there was this really energetic, passionate man in there that uh, interrupted me two or three times with questions, which was really fun. And and um, he said, Bob, I've just, I, I bought 100 pounds of fatheads and I put them in my two-acre pond because I wanted to feed my bass. My bass are overcrowded, they're stunted, and I just really wanted to feed those fish and make them grow. So I bought 100 pounds of fathead minnows. So now I'm listening to you talk about this. Was I wrong to do that? And I said, well... It takes 10 pounds of bait fish to gain one pound of, of game fish. He says, yeah. I said, all right. What would you pay for those fathead minutes? He said, I paid $10 a pound. So I said, you wrote a check for $1,000 to buy 100 pounds of fathead minnows, and what are you going to get out of that? 
He said, are you telling me I'm only going to get 10 pounds of bass out of that? I said, that's exactly what I'm telling you because the fathead minnows won't have a chance to become established. They won't have a chance to reproduce, and you're going to get what's stocked in there, and the fish are going to eat it. So my advice to you is when you catch some of those bass and eat them, do it by candlelight because <laughs> they're pretty expensive. He said, well, well, how should I have spent that money? I said, I'll tell you what I think you should have done. I think you should have bought a good good feeder, you know, a good feeder, 700 bucks, and with a warranty and great customer service, and then spend the other $300 on fish food and feed your fish. If you feed your bluegill, they're going to reproduce more. You're going to take them out of competition within the food chain quite a bit, and you're going to have four times as many bait fish as you would have had if you didn't feed the fish. So I think that money in your case would be much better spent to establish bluegill feed them, and grow more bait fish and let the pond do what the pond can do to grow its own bait fish. Another fish that you stock, uh, especially in the south, are red ears, uh, sunfish, shell crackers, they call them in the, in the south. Those things reproduce once a year, sometimes twice, but what they're notorious for is they feed on crustaceans and snails. Um, they're a good insurance policy in the food chain, but they're even a better uh, insurance policy against parasites. You know, most of the parasites that invade fish, the fish are the secondary host. Most of the time, snails are the primary host, and that's what shellcrackers or red sunfish eat. In the Midwest, pumpkin seeds are a good choice. You know, there's sometimes uh, golden shiners are a good choice. It kind of depends on the circumstance, but the food chain is really, really important to build. In the South, threadfin shad are a good choice. Because they're prolific as heck. They live in open water. They don't compete with other forage fish. The problem with threadfin shad is when the water temperature hits 42 degrees, they're going to die. You might as well be ready for that. Tell you what, though, a lot of folks think that, uh, especially like in, if you draw a line through Waco, Texas, through Jackson, Mississippi, through Atlanta, Georgia, along that line and north of it, Three out of five winters, threadfin shad are going to survive, except if you draw another line, say, through Oklahoma City, through Nashville, into the North Carolina area, in that, in that middle of that line, they might make it one to two winters out of the year. So threadfin shad could be a good choice, but you got to know that they're, going to, that they're going to have the chance to die when your water temperature gets cold. Bluegill to the backbone. You know, bluegill, when they're two and a half to three inches long, that's big enough to begin to reproduce. So that's a, they're, they're, they're the backbone of the food chain for largemouth bass. But I also got to tell you about bluegills. In the last eight or ten years, they have actually be- become more focused in the pond management industry as a game fish. You know, I would stand in front of a group of people giving a speech, and I would say, you know, I bet you this is 20, I've been in 25 years, so this is probably... 14 years ago. This is my 38th year of doing this. So this would have been like 2004, 5, 6, through there somewhere and earlier. I would stand in front of a crowd and say, you know, folks, I probably have held five or six bluegills, two pounds or bigger. And I probably held 250 that are a pound and a half. But I have held thousands of them that are a pound to a pound and a quarter. You can grow bluegill up to a pound and a quarter. Well, it's not like that now. In the last seven or eight years, I've probably held 500 bluegill 
bigger than two pounds. I've had my hands on a couple that are three pounds and bigger. The big difference is the fish foods. In today's world, we have much, much better fish foods than we did 15 years ago. And it started with Purina Mills. Purina did some research to figure out the nutritional needs for bluegill while they were figuring out the nutritional needs for largemouth bass. Because back, you know, 25 years ago, feed-trained bass were just beginning to become a trend. So Purina took some time to figure out how to meet the nutritional needs for bluegills. And the consequences of that are people that are now feeding a good, high-protein, fish meal-based fish food to their bluegills are seeing bluegills that, that grow two pounds and larger. There's other fish foods on the market that are coming up the pipeline. I believe in Purina Mills because I've seen what they do. I've seen the results. You know, how many kids caught their first fish that was a bluegill? I did. If you're out there and you caught one, that was the first fish you caught, raise your hand. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see you out there. That's a huge deal. You know, not only are bluegill an outstanding forage fish, the game fish that they've become is truly extraordinary. Richmond Mill Lake, home of the Kingfisher Society, in, uh, near Laurenburg, North Carolina, comes to mind. I've helped them manage that lake since 2005, and that lake has become legendary for the size of bluegills that it grows. And, you know, we weren't, that wasn't even a goal. That was one of the um, offalls or uh, fringe benefit. And now there are people that have a bucket list trip to that lake so they can catch a two-pound-plus bluegill. And I, I tell you this, there's not many days you go out there that you can't catch a two-pound bluegill. It's not like fishing in, in a barrel. you got to work at it, and you got to know what you're doing, but you got a shot at catching a two-pound-plus bluegill every time you go to that lake. You know, 20 years ago, nobody talked about that because all the bluegill were maybe about as big as your hand. Who wanted that? You know, let's go back to genetics. I'll, I'll always remember uh, going to Ray Scott's lake over in Pentlaw, Alabama, when I first started helping him manage his lake. And we put the electric fishing boat in there, and we shocked up four or five double-digit bass pretty quick. And, boy, they were all around specific cover. So I started asking him about his genetics, and he's pretty adamant. They had to have a certain percentage of Florida genes. Now, this was even before you could go meet up with a geneticist like you can now and figure out the percentage of the genes. So what he did was the, the people that he would buy the fish from, he would make them provide some records of the parentage of these fish unless they were coming from Florida. So he knew he had to have Florida bass to get to double digits. You need to know that as well. Now, there's areas in the country that Florida bass won't live. They're not real cold tolerant. So you need to know about that before you do it. You know, there's some big fish out there. I mean, when you when you can see a bass whose girth, you know, races, when that, if that fish looks like an Alabama deputy sheriff, I'm going to release it. <laughs> so genetics play a really, really big role. Well, after you've got that figured out, it's time to come up with your harvest plan. Because when you stock these fish, like I said earlier, it's going to be like planting a garden. You're going to put the fish in. You're going to nurture those fish. You're going to feed them. At some point, you're going to need to harvest a few fish. But what's cool is you get to pick what you're going to take out. For example, if you say, well, my goals are to grow some uh, plenty of bass in the two to five pound range. Well, by the third year, they're going to begin to reproduce. And 
you can start keeping some records, which I'm going to recommend this right now. Anything you do with your pond, keep records. Take photographs. When you build it, write down the dates. Write down the dates it filled with water. Keep the invoices where you buy fish. You know, the more records, when things start not working like you want and you call somebody like me, I want, I'm going to ask you first, give me some of the history. Tell me what you've done in the past. And the more you can tell me, the more helpful I can be for you to help you figure that out. In a typical bass bluegill pond, for example, by the third year, end of the third year, you're going to see the original fish that are stocked. The bass are going to be anywhere from a pound and a quarter up to six pounds. Now, the ones that are pound and a quarter, they're either underperforming performing females or they're going to be stunted males. Males don't get very big. So half the fish you stock in the beginning aren't going to get big because they're boys. Only the female bass are going to get bigger. Well, as time goes by, if you will weigh and measure some fish as you catch them, it won't take long before you can begin to see a decline in certain sizes of fish. They all won't lose weight at the same time. Certain size classes will, and typically it's the younger fish or the middle-sized fish. The 10 to 12-inch bass, they're going to be the ones that overeat the food chain. Because once you've got 3 to 5-pound bass, they're going to eat your smaller bass. So the best thing to do is weigh and measure some fish, keep good records, and at some point you'll see when your growth curve begins to slow down. When that happens, if you're proactive enough, that's when you can figure out when it's time to take some fish. If you catch a fish and it's skinny, probably ought to come out. But if you're catching a whole bunch of fish that are skinny, you really need to take a look at that. If you're catching some that are fat, some that are not, there's a reason for that. you got to figure that out. That's part of the fun of this pond management stuff. Your fish will tell you when it's time. They'll start losing weight. For example, a 10-inch bass should weigh about 10 ounces. A 12-inch bass should weigh somewhere around 12 ounces. A 14-inch bass ought to weigh about 1 pound 7 ounces. A 16-inch bass, two and a quarter. 18-inch bass, three and a quarter. If your fish weigh that, those are the standard weights for those links, then you're doing fine. But if they're not at that weight, if you catch a 14-inch bass that, that only weighs a pound and, and an ounce, you can pretty well bet that that fish lost five ounces. So keep good records, and you can tell when your fish begin to lose weight. They'll let you know. Track them. Keep records. Well, I remember one lake we did, there was a, the owner was, is a full-time sailor. That's what he does for a living for America's Cup competitive yachts. Well, for about six months of the year, he's gone. And he came back in one time. He says, hey, I want to uh, take a look at my three-acre pond, which was about five miles from our house. So we took the electrofishing boat over there, and we put it in and started trying to catch a few fish. And, and his fish looked healthy. The food chain looked healthy. It looked great. But in the live well, he picked up one emaciated fish. I mean, it was probably 40% underweight, 24 inches long, weighed maybe five pounds when it should have weighed eight or nine. In his left hand, he held that fish, and in his right hand, he held one up that was significantly shorter and twice as heavy. He said, Bob, what's the difference between these two fish? Well, our staff biologist, Chad Fikes, that day pulled out some tweezers, grabbed some scales, put a little bit of betadine on them so he could identify the rings and pulled the ring uh, the scales off the lateral line and he started counting the rings the best he could tell the fish in this guy's left hand the emaciated one was 13 years old 
The bigger fish in his right hand was about six years old. So what gives on that? I just told him, I said, hey, the one in your left hand is geriatric. It's on its way out. It's declining, and it won't gain any weight. The one in your right hand is young, vibrant, and growing. He said, well, what would you do? I said, I'd take that skinny fish out, pitch it on the bank. He had this kind of puzzled look on his face, and he thought about it for a second. Then he took that geriatric fish, threw it back in the lake, took the other fish, threw it back in the lake, and then I felt this puzzled look on my face. I said, what are you, what are you thinking there? He said, well, you know what? I am not going to kick anybody's grandmother to the curb. <laughs> Can't fault him for that. I think that was a good move. You want to harvest a few bluegill? You bet. Nothing wrong with that, especially after the third year. But do this. Do not take out your biggest bluegill. Your biggest bluegill are the ones that are defending the nest and protecting it from the smaller fish. Once a bluegill begins to reproduce, its growth potential plummets. You're probably not going to get much growth from small bluegills when they're on beds. Same thing with the red ear sunfish. Same thing with pumpkin seeds. Throw back your biggest ones and harvest the next size down. Harvest is a big deal. I remember one client we had that had a three-acre pond, wanted to put some feed-trained largemouth bass in there. That's one of the trends nowadays. And uh, to put them in there, feed them up, kind of like a feedlot, let the kids catch them. Well, in this case, we put the feed-trained bass in, and they had a ball. We put them in in the fall. The kids were catching them over the Thanksgiving break. But next spring, they seemed to be gone. So that next fall, we came back in on our annual journey over there to Electrofish, and, and uh, we were talking about that pond because he's got a bigger lake we were working on. He says, can we get some more feed train bass for the grandkids' pond? I said, sure. So we got him some more 50 pounds of feed train bass, something like that, put him in. Same thing happened. So this time, I said, you know what? We're going to shock that lake. We shocked it, and that little three-acre pond, we caught 18 catfish up to 22 pounds. They were eating his bass. Well, that wasn't his goal, so they chose to harvest those catfish, have a big fish fry. Harvest is a big deal. So here, let me kind of just summarize and bring all this to a close for you. Here's the rest of the story beyond the basics. Fish live in a community blended by those big four things that I was telling you about. Habitat, food chain, genetics, and harvest. But there's more that you need to know. For every biological action that you take, there's an adjustment. There'll be a reaction. Your job before you do anything is to know the consequences. If you go in and feed fish, you know they're going to grow. But if you overfeed fish, you need to know that your water quality can deteriorate. So a lot of examples that I can sit here and tell you of negative consequences. So think through your decisions before you do them. Remember, the water is the medium. I didn't talk much about water on this podcast. I'll do that on another. But just look at water as you have to have healthy water. You have to have the right pH, the right alkalinity. You could have oxygen, you know, contact with the atmosphere. Water is the universal solvent. Anything that can dissolve into water will. We'll save that for another discussion later. Habitat is the home in the shopping mall. Plants are part of that habitat. But the way that you tie your habitat together is going to determine the success of the fishery. Fish like to live in a community. In order to have harmony, you got to have diversity. With diversity, you got to have dense cover for small fish, more fluffy cover for bigger fish, and different cover for the big ambush predators. Your decisions should be based on your objectives and your goals and the way your pond and its fish behave. 
So once you figure those things out, you're going to be a better pond manager. And remember that different fish play different roles. What about stocking rates? Well, we'll save that for another podcast, but I'll go tell you this. There are standard stocking rates. There are advanced stocking rates. And I tell you, there's times when I have stocked fish that I never dreamed I would do. But working with a landowner that's a highly successful person by getting out of the box, we would sit down and figure out the box and we do some stocking strategies that are pretty cool. You know, just a real quick story. I remember a guy back in the late 80s who was getting up in years and he'd sold his company and decided to buy himself a farm, buy him a ranch. Well, he did that. He built a lake, but he says, you know, I don't even buy green bananas. I'm not sure I'll be here when they get ripe. (laughs) So what he decided to do was to stock that lake as though it had been there for five years, a mature fishery. So I shopped around, found some fish, helped him design the lake, got it built, and it didn't rain. Well, he was a man of means, so he was able to drill a well, fill that lake up with well water, and we stocked it as though it had been there for five years. He wrote a great big check. But at the other end of that spectrum was, uh, I remember a call not long ago from a guy 26 years old, been out of college about four years, uh, climbing the ladder in his company and doing pretty well with it inherited a family farm with a pond on it had a two-year-old four-year-old kiddos he said you know can i spend 500 bucks on restocking this pond after it went dry and have enough fish when my kids are seven and eight and nine years old to catch fish i said you bet so there's a way to do that you know so you've got the old tried and true methods that uh, the american fishery society came up with a long long time ago that worked but you've got some new world stuff too you can grow giant bluegills. You can use feed train largemouth bass. You can use hybrid strappers. You know, now the thing is, once you know your goals, you've also got to know your pond limits. Your stocking rates are determined by a whole bunch of stuff. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up here and tell you thank you for coming in and listening to this podcast. And when you get a minute, go to pondboss.com, click on the uh, Ask the Boss, check out the forum. That's a great resource for you. Use that as a resource. Uh, Give our office a call. Hey, and subscribe to the magazine. And by the way, we got our conference coming up. So go to palmboss.com, check us out, buy a subscription to this magazine. It will save you in the long run. It's $35 a year, and that's less money than you would ever spend on a Friday night dinner date. And you get all kinds of nuggets out of this that you can actually use. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for hanging out with the Pond Boss. Until next time, good fishing. Catch some big ones. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, tell me how. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, let's do it now. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, you're the one that makes fishing so.